Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covern Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I'm sitting here with Ann Miller, James Harkin, and Anna Chazinski. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, James Harkin. Okay, my fact this week is that... The very hungry caterpillar was originally called A Week with Willy the Worm. Nice. <laughs> Quite a different book, that sounds like. Yeah, how, how similar was it to the story about a caterpillar? Well, it was a different ending, mm. but it was didn't, a similar... The worm didn't turn into a butterfly. No, the worm didn't turn into a butterfly. Um, the book was written by a guy called Eric Carle, and he was inspired by a hole punch. Um, he noticed that the hole was going through some paper, and he thought, what if I turn this into a book? Uh, and so he thought, well, I could do a bookworm that goes through the holes. Oh. And so that's why it was called Willie the Bookworm. And then he, I think it was his publisher came up to him and said, well, why don't you change it instead of a worm into a caterpillar? And he thought, aha, caterpillars turn into butterflies. Spoiler alert. I could do that at the end of my book. Mm. Okay. Do we know, was it going to be like Monday, Willie the Worm goes to the shops, Tuesday, stays in bed all day it just seems i don't know why you spend a week with willie the worm this is the worst craig david song I've ever heard. <laughs> there are some quite traumatizing children's books out there there's one that's like um about the journey of a sperm which is really popular at the moment oh, yeah. i can't know what the sperm's is it called, called where willie went i think it is which is actually very misleading calling it willie i think that is going to confuse a lot of children <laughs> i saw a picture of that book where willie went um it's called the big story of a little sperm and on the front cover it says the best story of its sort, the Daily Mail. So it's like, oh, this wow. is the best children's book about sperm. In the genre. <laughs> children's there. sperm books. Uh, last cool. year's best-selling UK child's author. Dear uh, Williams? Yeah. yeah. He yeah. made seven million last year of book sales. Seven million pounds? Yes. If we you need look to get out of the podcasting game <laughs> and into the children's I books know. game. Yeah. So his books get something like 600,000 sales each. Like, he's got about eight books. It's, it's ridiculous. Wow. So I didn't look into books because I'm bored of them. I don't read. You've had enough of books. I just looked at worms. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyone else got? interested in worms? Yeah, definitely. So have you ever tried um, worm fiddling? No. What's that? Worm or charming. Worm, well, worm charming, worm fiddling, and worm grunting are all very similar. So worms, I don't think we know why, but when you create vibrations in the ground, then worms come up to the surface. Mm. And so the way you worm fiddle, you worm, worm grunt, which is like getting worms up to the surface, uh, is by making vibrations in the ground. And they think it might be because moles, when they're coming to attack worms, mm. they, uh, they burrow towards them, make vibrations, yeah. so they come up. Another theory is that they think it's rain coming down. Yeah. And so they're going out so that they don't mm. drown. Yeah. Um, but you think wow. on the other end, whenever a tractor like, plows a field, that's a vibration. So the worms get exposed, but then they get eaten by all birds that are always following exactly and the birds are extremely good at it like the seagull yeah. dance that you often see them doing um where they bounce around on the floor a little bit come that's on. to get the worms to come up ah. but the, so worm grunting charming fiddling whatever is kind of a competitive sport Amazing. and the person who holds the record for it is a 10 year old girl who set it in 2009 in cheshire and she brought up 567 <gasps> worms wow. out of that the ground. That's so cool. In this little portion of land. There was one um, year, I think it was like two or three years ago, at the World Worm Charming, where no one got a single worm in the entire group wow. of charmers. Well, maybe that's why uh, they've got more imaginative in how to get them up. Apparently, uh, in the competition that this girl won, techniques to get the worms up included a man who strummed rock tunes on his guitar, a woman who tap danced to the theme from Star Wars, and a man who played the xylophones with bottles. None wow. of whom actually won, but it does sound like a really entertaining event. And what did she do again? 
she just did a you t- the common way is you tap the ground with sort of a. So stick. she just went classic on it. She went classic. Wow. <laughs> um, I had a wee look at Eric Carle's website and his frequently asked questions. Oh, cool. Can I guess cool. what one of his frequently asked questions about the hungry caterpillar is? Uh, um, the one pl- problem with the hungry caterpillar. Ah, uh, it's that it comes out of a cocoon, not a chrysalis. Okay. So usually butterflies come from chrysalises, but there is one called the Parnassian that comes in a cocoon. So okay. if anyone's quibbling... I bet that was a good is Google okay. find a when good, he good find. frantically looked to how he could... Yeah, they live in Siberia. Cool. Right. No, actually, <laughs> I, I based it on a Siberian uh, caterpillar. But he also says, um, and here's my unscientific explanation. My caterpillar is very unusual. Caterpillars don't eat lollipops and ice cream, so you won't find my caterpillar in any field guides. Right. I fucked point. up, right? Yeah. <laughs> I fucked up. I should have said that. I said this. Just leave it. Yeah. Fuck's sake. I didn't know there are kids on his website, James. <laughs> Such an angry man. <laughs> He's so angry, isn't he? He's he is Such a, nat- an angry author. He is a national a national treasure and beloved by children. Yeah, but he's got to curb the language. <laughs> <laughs> it's not appropriate for an FAQ on your own website. Um can I just quickly tell you about one really terrifying worm? I know I keep on trying to rebound this conversation back mm-hmm. to worms. Uh-huh. Um, but there is this worm called the Bobbit worm, which lives on the bottom of the ocean. Oh, is he named after Lorena Bobbit? I don't know who that is. Is that oh, a reference from the it, 50s, James? No, it's, it's jo- not. Is it John Wayne Bobbit? Yeah, so Lorena Bobbit was John Wayne Bobbit's wife. Yeah. Who chops off his penis. Yeah. That makes sense. Maybe he's named after a decapitated penis. Was it by any chance a 10-foot long penis? Well, <laughs> not by the time she cut it up. <laughs> it is 10-foot long. It lives on the bottom of the ocean, and it lives under the sand at the bottom of the ocean. And then when prey comes past, it pops up and snaps its jaws down so fast that it can cut fish straight in half. Wow. And then it sucks them. So if you're cut in half, you're dead already, which is good for you. And if you're not, it sucks you down into the sand, under sand, and eats you. I just think a 10-foot long worm that can cut fish in half is a pretty cool worm. Uh, I have a more scary worm than that even, I think. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, this is a colonoscopy-performing f- robot no. um, that wow. moves through your body in the same way that an earthworm moves. Well, as in they've they've actually made the movement of it yeah. to mimic it. To mimic an earthworm. Wow. That's quite scary, isn't it? Is there it? any reason they're sending robots into my body? Or um, yeah, to yeah, medical purposes. Use. It's not an Ann Summers product. <laughs> <laughs> the 10-foot run, oh, no. It will be. Give it a year. <laughs> I like this. I clicked on the Mongolian death worm, which I think we've discussed before. Uh, we have, by the way. Interesting fact. Oh, I was going to mention it, but Andy has banned me from ever talking about the Mongolian death worm. Here's your chance. He's not here. I've used it like three times. For, for listeners who haven't heard it, it's a uh, worm from Mongolia that shoots lightning bolts out of its anus. <laughs> a disgusting creature that fires lightning out of its anus. Andy Murray will be back next week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, we should move on soon, shouldn't we? Oh, should we? Okay. Oh, we can um, do more worms. I've got a few more kid book things. One is one's a question, which is J.K. Rowling has said that she regrets killing one character from Harry Potter. I want to see if anyone can guess. Is it Harry Potter? Um, Does he die? James. It's uh, <laughs> so I can't answer that for spoiler alert reasons. <laughs> and I actually didn't. I didn't write down his name, but he's a random ice cream man, right? Florian Fortescue. Right, so yeah, it's just a total random character, but it's because it was a senseless killing. She didn't bring it back into the story in any way. She didn't justify the killing for any reason. She just had him killed. She was just having a bad day. Someone had had written into her website saying, your wizards aren't actually technically wizards, and she just (laughs) lost it. (laughs) Okay, time for fact number two, and that is Anne. 
My fact is that in World War II, the 20 Committee was in charge of turning German spies. In Roman numerals, that made them the XX Committee or the Double Cross Committee. Okay. Which basically means at peak wartime, someone thought, you know what's good here? A pun. <laughs> yeah. Did they do it on purpose then? I'm not. So I heard this. I went to Bletchley Park the other week and I got told this on the walking tour, which is brilliant. But I have read recently that they were double cross first and then changed it to 20 after. So either way, it's the double cross pun and then 20 for making it less obvious. But it was hiding in plain sight. And is there a 1 to 19? I don't know. I like to think there just was 20 when someone said that works. I don't know about 1 to 19, actually. I think, I don't, well, I know the guy who oversaw it was this guy called Tar Roberts, Robertson, who was the MI5 agent who overlooked it. And he will have done it on purpose because, um, so wartime rules dictated that spy code names couldn't have a hint of the person's actual identity in them. And he disregarded these rules completely and made his own rule that every single spy name had to be a pun a hint as to his actual name or a joke amazing what was he called he was called tar robertson actually and i don't think he gave himself i think he gave himself a perfectly like impossible to uncover name but so it was like dusko popov was his second in command and he called him scoot because he popov nice although he then later changed his code name to tricycle because he was known for having threesomes mm. i have tricycle oh i have that arthur owens was one of the first agents they turned on this and his code name was snow which is most letters of his surname yes yeah yeah. But he was great because he was one of the first ones to work for this committee. And he was very useful because the Abwehr, the Germans, used him as their meeting rate for new agents arriving in Britain. So everyone that came in to spy for them went through him. He was a, reporting right. to MI5. Ah. So he could just let them know what was going on. So just to give this a bit more context, this is World War II. Bletchley World War II. Park had set up. They were trying to um, sort of get a lot of tricks over on the Germans. And a lot of German agents were coming into Britain. Yeah. And immediately either being caught or giving themselves up yeah. and then acting as double agents and so, going back to Germany or sending messages back. To report and, back. And it was a huge part of the war. I mean, yeah. it led to some of the biggest moments in the war, like the D-Day. Um, yeah, the D-Day justified it. I have read one really good uh, book extract, which is basically saying this was this ridiculous sideshow with these idiots playing spy games for the whole war, mostly pointless. And the only reason we now look back on them with this like air of God, they saved us is because, because of D-Day. Like there was one instance where we tried to persuade the Germans that we were going to be attacking uh, the French coast at a certain place. Mm-hmm. And so we sent out all these secret radio signals hoping they'd pick them up and stuff and they'd get all their troops there. And then we sent some dummy boats out towards mm-hmm. the French coast so it seemed like we were going to attack. And they hadn't picked up on any of these things we'd planted in their radio <laughs> waves. So we just like spent ridiculous amounts of money and effort on absolutely nothing. Mm. One of my favourite double agents was a guy who was uh, codenamed Garbo. So he was um, a guy called uh, Joal... Pujol Garcia from Barcelona. He was anti-communist, anti-Nazi, and wanted to work for the British. But he thought he'd be more helpful if he was already a German spy. So he got himself recruited by telling them he had a visa and was going to England anyway. Didn't have the visa. So he would spend his, all his time in Lisbon Library making up stuff for his spy network and research lines, including things like, there are in Glasgow men who will do anything for a litre of wine. And his reports were so, so that accurate. That was a lie, was it? That was um, his impression from Lisbon of what life in Britain was like. Okay. But his reports were so accurate, MI5 got really worried and started hunting for this mole in the UK because they thought stuff was getting out. He was just making it all up. And then in the end, he managed to get recruited by Britain, came over here to spy, told the Germans he had 24 spies, this big network. And because it was backed up by the British, whenever he had killed someone off, they put their obituary in the paper so it would look legit to the Germans. Right. Um, and on D-Day, he was telling his contacts to stand by for an important message to distract them from what was actually happening. And they never found out when he got honours after the war for his efforts by the Germans. Um, I didn't know that thing about all the names had to be a slight pun. And I've got a big list of names of some of the spies. And is it all falling into place now? Slightly. I mean, you've got to sort of know what they did. Like, I don't know what Biscuit 
did. Ate a lot of snacks. I can presume what the spy careless did. <laughs> <laughs> Got fired. <laughs> yeah. Freak. Um, not sure what he did. Gander. Oh, Ga- I can tell you Gander. Yeah. Gander was just Kurt Goose. Uh, Which I would have been so annoyed if I was called Kurt Goose and my boss said, I'm going to give you the code name Gander. I think I'd be saying, do you mind giving me a slightly less obvious code name? (laughs) Well, well, how about this one? Sniper. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if the idea is because like in those days there would have been a stereotype that Germans don't have a sense of humour probably. And they thought by doing puns, they'll never get these puns because Germans don't have a sense of humour. I bet they had that chat in my five HQ. Mullet. I'm going to guess that one's <laughs> hair-based. Well, the, mu- the word mullet about hair only dates back to the 1980s. Ah. Uh, that was the earliest anyone's ever found it is in a song by the Beastie Boys. And no one's ever found an earlier use of the word mullet. Oh, so Beastie Maybe. Boys technically coined mullet. Yeah, actually, it might even but be the 90s. Um, so the first German spies who came over were ill-prepared, right? <laughs> They couldn't speak any English, mm. a lot of them, or spoke really bad English, to the extent that um, MI5 thought that they were joking, thought that they were lying, <laughs> and used to interrogate them and say, obviously, you know, Germany wouldn't be stupid enough to send a spy <laughs> who could not speak any English. But yeah, isn't that bizarre? Yeah. So with Bletchley, when they set this up, the way that they started recruiting people was through a crossword that mm-hmm. they put out in the papers, and they set a challenge saying, if people think that they can do a crossword in, within 12 minutes, come and take this challenge. So people came and they did the challenge, and after they won, they were then recontacted saying, listen, you managed to do this, why don't we get you to uh, to work at Bletchley? And they reprinted the crossword. You can try the crossword oh, and cool. see if you can do it in 12 minutes. Yeah, I send off crosswords to the Sunday Times and Telegraph when I've done them, and I do it in the secret hope that one day I am going to get a phone call that one I mean they do invite yeah. you to send them off to win a fountain pen it's not like I'm just sending unsolicited <laughs> how many posts every week how many pens do you have now <laughs> I've never won a pen I want a notebook I've never once successfully got the clue to a crossword right ever what a cryptic I have sh- any crossword and I've tried. I've tried that's exactly what a spy would say though wouldn't they they'd oh, be like I am so bad at crosswords yeah. they would never recruit me the day I find out Dan Schreiber is a spy is the day I book my ticket to Mars one way <laughs> well here's another bit of evidence he doesn't really speak very good English <laughs> <laughs> a would, a, would a spy say covered guard yeah it's so no one knows where we are it's an act of genius surname yeah. Schreiber German surname what does that mean again Schreiber, writer, yeah. writer, writer. Yeah, okay. just saying. That's... And that was an ironic kind of pun, right? When they gave you that, yes. this is all yeah. falling into place. <laughs> <laughs> There's this book called uh, Double Cross: The True Story of D-Day Spies. It's by a guy called Ben McIntyre, and I would highly recommend it. It's full of really exciting spy yeah, stories. Yeah, could I just say as well? Um, he wrote a book called Agent Zigzag, one of the best nonfiction books I've read about mm. spying. Yeah. It just and it reads like an Indiana Jones novel based on uh, one of these agents, Agent Zigzag. Yeah, he's yeah. awesome. But so he tells this story about a spy called Gosta Caroli, who was a German spy who uh, was parachuted into the Northamptonshire countryside. He got concussed because he had a bad landing and he tried to sleep off his concussion in a ditch. A farmer saw his leg poking out and so he was arrested. But then it was great being arrested as a spy in those days because you'd immediately have the government going, well, do you want to just be a spy for us instead? <laughs> so he was arrested and agreed to be a double agent for Britain. Um, but he agreed at first and then he sort of changed his mind and decided he was betraying the Nazis so he was in a safe house in Cambridge and he was given a minder because double agents had minders to check they weren't going rogue and uh, he crept up behind his minder while he was playing patience and tried to throttle him with a piece of rope when this didn't work he apologised tied him to a chair 
and ran off with a tin of pilchards, a pineapple, and a large canvas canoe. Then he stole a motorbike and rode towards the coast with the canoe balanced on his head with the plan to row to Holland. He fell off the motorbike, unsurprisingly, I guess, um, and then he approached a passing man and asked him to help him dispose of his canoe over a hedge, at which point, when the man had helped him do that, this man called the police and said, a guy with a German accent on a motorbike and a canoe on his head just asked me to help him dispose of his canoe. Does that sound right? And then the quote from this book was, clearly unfit for double agent work. He spent the rest of the war in prison. I like to think that if he'd have gotten to the coast, he would have got in his canoe and put the motorbike on his head and rode across the sea. This, I feel like you've told me this before, Anne, mm-hmm. and, but I don't think it's been on our show, which is that um, at one point when Bletchley was going on, Agatha Christie, yeah, yeah so she got investigated. It, Do you want to tell the story? It's really yeah, interesting. Well, so Agatha Christie um, had a friend who actually worked at Bletchley, who was very much a part of the Enigma uh, <laughs> code cracking team. And she released a book called N or M, and in it, there's a character called Major Bletchley. And... Everyone got really worried that this guy, Dilly Knox, his name was, was leaking information about mm. Bletchley to Agatha Christie. And um, it turns out that what happened was she was on a train heading back to London from Oxford and it stopped for ages at Bletchley. Mm-hmm. And she got so annoyed by being stopped in the delay that she said, I'm going to name the worst character in my book after this crappy town that we've been stuck <laughs> in. And so it was just a total coincidence. Um, Bletchley isn't on the way from Oxford to London. <laughs> She's a spy. She's obviously it's a spy. Ever it's the crappiest excuse ever. And I can't believe James and I are the first ones to spot that Bletchley's my... Did she mean Reading? <laughs> <laughs> All the spies were in Reading Park and we've just been mishearing this all these years. <laughs> just a couple of things on punning. Yep. Uh, Always. That's obviously a pun in the name. So there's a pun in the book of Genesis. Well, what is it? The Bible. Um, the problem is that puns that are written in different languages aren't very good to repeat on this podcast because we can't get them unless mm. I explain the language to you. But um, so it's that the word for uh, cunning, which describes a serpent, is very similar to the word for naked. So the words are arum and aramim. And mm. so I think it's the idea is maybe that it's a pun saying that the serpent is very close with its evil. It's actually very close mm. to these naked people who are about to be evil. Mm. Or So that's very, very funny One from the Bible. Yep, they did. okay time for fact number three and that is chazinski my fact this week is that houses in bali are built in proportion to the owner's body that's incredible it's so cool but what does it mean i don't actually know what it means i mean (laughs) if you have a big head they do a big roof or something it's kind of like that except it's not quite laid out like that you obviously haven't spoken to balinese architects but it's similar um hang your head in shame james Um, so they employ a special kind of architect who's called an undagi mm. and the first thing he does when you employ him to come and build your household is he measures all your body parts and works out and by those measurements he can work out what shape and size to make the house um, so he'll measure different parts of the head um, he measures the distance from the elbow to the fingers I think uh, the width of the fist the length of the index finger the width of the little finger and all these measurements determine the size of the compound and the dimensions inside of like pavilions and the spacing of different pillars and the width of the beds even is determined by you know the width of a fingernail or whatever it's so weird that's amazing yeah that's it's right. really cool and there's a bit so part of the house represents the head and that's where the 
the head of the family should stay because they think that the head is the most sacred part of the body mm. it's the best bit and then <laughs> the feet are where sort of the cows and the pig if you've got if you own farm animals the mm. foot area of the house is where they stay and then it's got okay. an anus area which is where the rubbish is and which is where they measure the house do they is. measure the size of your anus <laughs> i believe they have to wow otherwise you can't build a proper house that's amazing. I mean, I'm assuming that's not every single house in Bali. I've been to no. Bali and I've never seen the measurements. No, it's traditional houses. Because <laughs> <I mean, laughs> if you didn't know who had done that process and not, and you got to their house and you saw at the back there was a massive rubbish bit. <laughs> but Mike's got a massive anus. <laughs> I had no idea. Is he okay? He's got three skips in there. enormous anus. <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't know if they do that. Right. I wonder if you'd be able to go to a house, measure all the rooms and say, oh, this person must have slightly above average size head, <laughs> yeah. large anus, yeah. or whatever, large feet. So it's going to be Jeff or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe there's a, if you take your girlfriend home, then she brings a tape measure and you find her measuring the sort of protruded extension at some point, And that's, that's how you judge a man, isn't it? What? You mean it's like... You know what they say about men with large areas for their pigs and cattle? <laughs> large Huge feet. protruding extension. <laughs> By the way, uh, Jeff and Mike, not very Balinese names that we've picked <laughs> for these examples, um, but Balinese names are really interesting. Mm. Um, so I used to go to Bali a lot as a child because I grew up in Hong Kong. It was, it was oh, very yeah. close. And um, so we used to go a lot because Hong Kong being a concrete mm. jungle, you sort of wanted to get away yeah. from the city. And that was a nice place that you could get to very easy. And the names there, uh, so they're, they're kind of given the same names. Um, this is traditionally, so I, I don't want to speak as if everyone's got this, mm. but Wayan is a name that I've known since childhood because everyone I've met there is called Wayan. It's the oldest. Really? It's mm. the first son is called Wayan. Um, there's a few other options for that as well, but Wayan is the, the big one. Um, second born names, Maddy. And Wayan's for guys, by the way. Um, mm. Then you've got the third borns, the fourth borns, and that's all that the list goes up to. So then if you have a fifth child, they just call it uh, Wayan and then use the word for again in oh, Balinese. Really? So it's Wayan again. So the word for the name for a fourth child, the ones that Dan's just listed there have a few alternatives. So mm. you can say Wayan and then there are a couple of other synonyms that they say. So yeah. you could have one of two or three names. But for the, if you're the fourth born, there's only one name. And I think that's because at the time the system was set up, they wanted to discourage people from having too many kids. So they were like, look, you're fourth kid. You've only got one option for the name. And that option is Ketut. And it means little banana, as in the smallest banana oh. at the end of the bunch. So every single fourth oh. child is called little banana. That's much sweeter. That's than, do you remember cool. the thing we had about Victorian slang for the youngest child? What was that? Last shake of the bag. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> nice one, Victorians. Uh, um, I just, this is completely off topic, but I was reading about it today. Um, if you read any old kind of Guinness Book of Records, there's often the uh, woman with most children. Mm. Uh, and she was Russian. She was from St. Petersburg. I can't remember her name. Valentina, maybe it was something. Uh, maybe Valentina Vasiliev or something. Oh, yeah. Anyway, so she had um, 67 children, if I remember rightly. Ooh. A lot of them were triplets and, um, you know, twins. I bet she's got a big garbage jump, hasn't she? <laughs> Dan, come on. Come on, everyone. <laughs> 
Yep, go on. Yeah. Valentina. Yeah, but what I what I learned um today is that her husband after um he left her and then went to another woman and had eighteen children with her. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, but it's like nineteenth century, so I think we're not hundred percent sure if it's all true, but mm. there are some contemporary reports about it. Wow. That's a lot. So it's possible that everyone in St. Petersburg is descended from that one man. That is <laughs> That's the logical conclusion. <laughs> So in Bali, they have sort of an inbuilt sense of direction. It's one of the first things you learn is your sense of direction. Mm. And um, anthropological accounts will say that if like a traditional Balinese person um, uh, moves to a place where they're not sure about their orientation, and they get really disoriented, then that can make it makes them feel really uncomfortable. Do you mean like it's you always know which way is north kind you of thing? You always know which way is north, except if you go to Bali and you ask which way is north, sometimes they'll point south. <laughs> Because <laughs> and th- these Why? people have an extraordinary way of telling where's north. Why do they pa- point um, south? So the reason they point south is actually because the equivalent north in Bali is mm. actually just towards their biggest mountain. Um, so and the biggest mountain in Bali is right in the middle. And so it's not actually north, it's Kaja. But that's often translated in English as north. Uh, and most people live in the south of Bali, so Kaja is usually north. But you're if you're north. in North Bali and they say Kaja, then they mean south towards the mountain. Right. And all of the orientation is, is based on towards the mountain or towards oh, cool. the sea. But I reckon if I had to point towards the largest feature in my island... Mm-hmm. I would be able to do that because it's a massive mountain. You just go, look, it's there. Just yeah. stop doing down the innate sense of direction. Well, I couldn't point, point to like Ben Nevis. Yeah, they can't all see it. Or they can't all see it, although they're, they're, I did north? read something that said that Balinese people who live nearer other mountains use that mountain instead as north. Is this right. Mount Agung? Yes. Yes. Okay, mm-hmm. so Mount Agung, uh, it's twice the size of Ben Nevis. Can you see it from everywhere? Like, I, can feel you see like, the I feel like it was always... You know, there's, I mean, there's obviously bits where you just go way too far mm. and it's just whatever fog might take mm. over or something like that. But, um, yeah, it's that erupts quite... Well, it used to erupt quite a lot. I remember as kids, when we used to go past it, we were always really scared because they said, well, it's still active and you know, <laughs> that's mm. not what you want to hear. Yeah. And I asked my uh, dad, what would we do in the situation? And he said, well, I'd grab your sister and run. And I'd be like, what? <laughs> what about me? <laughs> so, in the scenario of death, uh, I was being left behind by my dad. That's why I learned that At day. least he was honest with you. Yeah. Should we move on? Um, just on buildings related to body parts, quickly. Yep. Um, China now, the Chinese government now has a ban on building eccentric buildings um, because people keep building buildings they consider embarrassing. One of them was built by a British company and uh, it's called the Pair of Pants. It's been called the Pair of Pants. It used to be called the Gate of the Orient Building um, because it looks like a giant pair of trousers and lots of people in the area complained. It's in Suzhou in China and local bystanders are raging that it's just a big pair of pants as soon as the legs were joined together and they say, I just feel like I'm humiliated as I walk under someone's crotch. And so the Chinese government said, look, no more embarrassing buildings. Wow. Yeah, shame. They did a few years ago in South Sudan. Do you remember when they got their uh, independence, they decided they were going to build all of their um, cities in the shape of animals? Wow. So they were going to move their capital from... um, God, the capital is Juba, I think. They were going to move it to a new city which was shaped like a giraffe or an elephant or something. The city was shaped like a giraffe? Yeah, yeah. Really? And they would put, like, the um, the president's palace would be in the eye of the elephant or giraffe and the waste disposal would be where the anus would be. And, cool. Yeah. And it's like oh, wow. the streets would be lit. Yeah, yeah, but That's they never cool. did it because basically it would cost, like, 
20 billion pounds to do it <laughs> and the, the poorest country in the world so they never did it but yeah. they thought it might get like tourists in and stuff I go to visit the giraffe town yeah. I don't know if you would if it was in the South Sudan I'd be tempted to pop in if I was ever going from Oxford to London <laughs> <laughs> Okay, time for our final fact of the show, and that is my fact. And my fact this week is that, according to Isaac Newton, the world is going to end in 2060. <laughs> okay. Uh, and he knew a lot, so he knew a ton. we believe it? Uh, no, okay, so we definitely shouldn't believe it. It's interesting that he just made that prediction, though. And he, because obviously we all know, um, if you've looked into Newton's life, that he was obviously this great scientist, but he also believed in a lot of, I don't know, alchemy and and myth- mystical sort of stuff. Crazy he, shit, as some Crazy call stuff, it. yeah. And he also, but he, the Bible was one thing that he really loved analyzing. And this is where he got the date 2060 from. He was analyzing the Bible and he was trying to work out um, when the end of the world would be. I but didn't he say that 2060 is just the earliest that yes. it might yeah. end? Yeah. I think he said, um, it may end later, but I see no reason for it ending sooner than mm. 2060. Yeah. Yeah. He, he also said it was to... Uh, to put a stop to the rash conjectures of fanciful men who are frequently predicting the time of the end and by doing so bring the sacred pro- prophecies into discredit as often as their predictions fail. I should rephrase my fact. Uh, according to Isaac Newton, the world will end in 2060 or sometime in between then and the end of the universe. <laughs> well, actually, no. I think that um, one of the leading Newton scholars, who's called Snowblen, said has worked out exactly what he meant by it and says he thought the world was going to end sometime between 2060 and 2344. Okay. So it's in that window. Okay, that's a good apparently. Uh, yeah, but, but yeah, it, I think it was just it was sort of rough scribblings, wasn't it? It wasn't really ever mm. meant to be published. He scribbled it on the back of an envelope, literally. Yeah, I think, and it might have just been to put off, as Anne says, all of these scaremongers who kept on predicting the end of the world, and he really got very annoyed about that. All mm. these prophecies that were saying the world's going to end. So he thought the way to counter that is for me to prophesize when the world's going to end. Yes. But also need to put it way out of his own lifetime, so no one can say you were wrong. Yeah, but so he he was he was a truly interesting character. Yeah. For outside of uh, his work in science. Um, interestingly, his most famous work, uh, which I find hard to say, Principia, mm-hmm. uh, almost didn't get published. How come? Because a book just before it that was published uh, was called uh, History of Fishes or Historia Perseum, mm-hmm. and it bankrupts basically the whole of the world and as what? a result <laughs> Wait, go back, couldn't go afford back. to publish another book <laughs> it bankrupted yeah. the whole world it's, and somehow the world pulled the pulled the cash together uh yeah and they got the money together eventually Ooh. and so it was published so yeah what do you actually mean by no, that? it's to do, do with know? the royal society yeah so they had they had funding for publishing books and they thought this book on fishes was gonna be massive and it tanked uh no one bought <laughs> it hey. Um, so it basically delayed um, the publication of Principia, so they weren't able to do it. And then Edmund Halley stood in, mm. and he mm. said that I think this book should be published, and he even put in some of his own money, and so it was eventually published in 1687. But there was a point where it wasn't going to be published because of the situation that they were in. That's, That's really tough. interesting. Yeah. yeah. I have another Royal Society bit, which is that there was a bit of... Well, today it's generally accepted that both uh, Newton and Leibniz came up with calculus independently. But there was a while when they were sort of... They, were, they set up basically the Royal Society in 1713, set up a committee to decide once for all who'd done it. who, And they found that it was Newton. Chair of the committee? Newton. Newton. Ah. <laughs> like, I think it was me, you're fine. <laughs> 
But he had a like he had a lot of uh, professional rivalries. Really bitter one with yeah. Hook. Hook is the one I remember. Hook's, yeah. Hook's his main mm. one. Oh, and actually, God, Hook he gets everywhere. Peter Pan he pisses off. He pisses <laughs> off. <laughs> Newton, that's a bad guy. The crocodile. <laughs> I think Hook might be the good. Ah, uh, no, it's hard to say who's the good guy. In this. I think they're both not very good guys, actually. Yeah. Okay. So um, he yeah he had this dispute with Hook, and it was about uh, when he came up with his theory of gravity, and Hook said that actually Newton got part of this idea mm. from me about how gravity decreases the um, inverse square law the inverse square law precisely don't uh, explain that we all know what that means. <laughs> dan and i are fine. don't want to patronize anyone <laughs> and yeah newton just wrote this letter saying uh he had absolutely nothing to do with it and i don't need to include him in my book but there is a theory that you know the quote that newton is most famous for saying which is your mama's so fat that <laughs> Your mum is so fat that the gravity decreases by the inverse of the square of the distance as I move away from her. <laughs> was that it? Sorry, guys. Um, his most famous quote is, if I have seen further, it is standing on the shoulders of giants. Oh, yeah. So, and he wrote that to Robert Hooke in a letter where he was saying, you know, I've, it's, I've been a real help having you guys around. If I've seen further, it's by standing on the shoulders of giants. Mm. Some people believe, actually, this was just a jibe at Hooke because Hooke had a quite serious back problem, which caused him to have a really massive hunch. Oh. And so some people have now saying, speculated. You look like a stepladder. No? <laughs> I don't get it. What's the jibe? So he's thanking the giants, but not hit because he's too oh, small. He's yeah. small. Yeah. Oh. You're not one of those giants. Yeah, not like, it's nice that you're bending over so I can climb onto your shoulders. <laughs> he, so um, I found a list. Have you guys read this list that he wrote when he was about 20 years old? Yes, I love it's it. Incredible. His it's incredible. It's such an insight. What his sins. sins. A list what of what his are your favorite ones? My favorite is threatening my father and mother Smith to burn them in the house over them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's pretty vicious. <laughs> The next um, one is wishing death and hoping it to some. <laughs> wow. Eating an apple at thy house. Probably the apple. He <laughs> was, uh... Caught it, ate it. Was that so you're not allowed to eat an apple in church? Is well, that I the guess deal? at the time. So yeah. focused on praying, not your belly. 24, punching my sister. <laughs> 25, robbing my mother's box of plums and sugar. Yeah. Oh, is that some kind of weird euphemism? No. no. For making apple. jam. Well, making jam is a euphemism. So. There you go. <laughs> people have speculated about his relationship with his mother. It was very difficult and twisted. A lot of people have Freudianly uh, decided that he has mother issues, and that's why he remained a virgin his whole life, which he did, didn't he? Mm, yeah. Never really had an attachment to women, because they think. And he hated his stepfather. Mm. So. Oh, he didn't like his sister much because he punched her. No, that was a sign of affection in oh, the 17th yeah. century. Playful yeah. punching. Okay, going on to the end of the world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there's a book called 88 Reasons the Rapture Will Be in 1988 by <laughs> Edgar um, which I really like. And um, on Amazon, there's some uh, one-star reviews. In fact, there's only two reviews, and they're both one-star reviews. Mm. Um, and one of the reviews is, really, it's impossible to give this a positive review, given that it exists entirely to preach that the rapture will be happening in 1988. <laughs> As I recall, the rapture did not occur in 1988. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but yeah, this guy, uh, Edgar Weissam, was quite famous at the time, but um, obviously... In 1989, they realized that he was wrong. Um, but then his next book was called Rapture Report 1989. <laughs> <laughs> and then he also wrote another one called 23 Reasons It Looks Like the End of the World Will Occur on Rosh Hashanah 1993. <laughs> and another one called Earth's Destruction by Fire Nuclear Bonfire Prediction for 1994. <laughs> 
Is it an annual? <laughs> yeah, exactly. it, it is phenomenal though, how these people manage to, if it doesn't when it doesn't happen to say, oh yeah, we just got the numbers wrong, and then the next time there's always a big fuss again. There was a new mm. story and people panic. What I really like is this guy in uh, New Hampshire who set up a business called Eternal Earthbound Pets, which will look after the pets. If you believe you're going to be raptured, you pay him to look after your pet because the ones who stay behind can feed the cats. <laughs> and he's told the Wall Street Journal that they would be the people who pay him will be disappointed twice. Once because they weren't raptured, and again because I don't do refunds. Mm. <laughs> but actually. That he admitted that that was a hoax a bit later on. Oh no! Well, it was because the um, state insurance department came after him and said, "Oh, you seem to be selling insurance, but you're not really registered to sell insurance, are you?" He um, he said he's had no clients, um, never issued a certificate, and he's not taken a single dollar in the three years of its existence. So the business Maybe. isn't going well. Sure, <laughs> um, it is really um, interesting though that whole. When when the rapture come when you've predicted the rapture comes and it doesn't what do you do after that and I think that was one of the spurs for psychological uh, analysis of cognitive dissonance mm. which is the thing where you sort of adjust reality in your mind to suit what you've expected because humans find it so hard to deal with facts that don't accord with what they thought was the truth and so I think uh, this was expanded in 1954 when Dorothy Martin said that she'd received news from the planet Clarion that a bunch of aliens were going to come down on a flying saucer and beam up everyone who you know collected in a certain area and she gathered quite a few followers and um, on Christmas Eve they all went to this area to be beamed up by a flying saucer and they sung some Christmas carols and the the flying saucer didn't come and what she didn't realize was that her group had been infiltrated by this really famous psychologist called Festinger who I think is the leading psychologist mm. on cognitive dis- dissonance who was looking at how how do you justify that mm. and they justified it by saying the aliens were so impressed at their sign of devotion that they decided not to destroy earth after all oh that is um, a brilliant and excuse went away again yeah um I saw a thing on twitter about a while ago which I love which is there was a dystopian futures book um, convention and someone overheard someone saying excuse me is this the queue for the apocalypse <laughs> one of the events yeah, i just think it's, it's so gonna... british yeah yeah queuing for the apocalypse you know newton used to give lectures to empty lecture theaters did he actually someone's done a study uh, on kind of the mentally what famous scientists are like mm. and that someone is simon baron cohen who's a really oh, yeah. famous neuroscientist yes. and he's also sasha baron cohen's cousin um, but this is looking into how they display signs of autism and it seems like Newton found it really hard to connect to other people mm. and he gave really boring lectures he didn't care about lecturing he just wanted to be alone in his attic studying so people tended not to go and if no one went he'd just give the lecture anyway to an empty room close off the whole street and that's it for this week's episode you'll notice our abrupt ending there that was because alex bell came in to tell us that the entire road that we work on had been evacuated except for us because we were busy making a podcast talking about the end of the world uh so we had to leave the building immediately also incidentally at the same time mount etna erupted uh so yeah uh but that's it that's our show that's all of our facts thank you so much for listening if you want to get in contact with any of us about the things we've said over the course of this podcast we can be found on our twitter accounts i'm on at schreiberland and at miller underscore Anne. james at egg shaped Zinsky. You can email podcast.qi.com. Yep. Or you can find us at no such thing as a fish.com where all of our previous episodes are up and ready to be listened to. We'll see you again next week. Goodbye.